Oh, would you look at time? It's time to see what's a cog's worth. Podcast where I take one scene in a Disney movie and determine what would change in that movie if that scene just didn't take place. Today, I'm here with my good friend, Matt, who is, I don't know, the biggest fan of Disney's The Sword and the Stone I think I've ever met. That That's probably true. So today we're going to be discussing what would happen if we removed the scene at the very end of the movie where Arthur, future King Arthur, pulls the sword out of the stone. So are we talking just the sword out of the stone or the throne room scene as well? You know, I feel like, I think we can argue both. I, I think there's a fun discussion to be had in both situations. My argument here came from the thought of, without that scene, this is just kid boy learning magic and life lessons from Merlin. Right, and isn't that such a better movie when it's just stripped from the lore of like what King Arthur is going to do next? Yes, 100%. But that just, the scene itself, just, I, I never, I think that's one of the reasons I hate it as a movie. It's because nothing that happens, Arthur, Arthur's our main character, and he just, nothing happens to him the entire movie. Well, because Arthur's a weenie, but stuff does happen. I think it's definitely different from particularly the Renaissance movies that most of us are familiar with at this point. I will say, I guess I'm the old phobia of the podcast so far, and that I was actually alive for most of the Renaissance. And like, remember seeing some of the tail end of it in theaters back when we went to movies. I mean, I'm sure I was in the theaters too. Don't know that I was alive yet, but I'm sure I was, like, there. <laughs> no, I, I remember seeing Tarzan, like, in theaters for the first time, and that being, like, a formative experience. But anyway, Sword in the Stone is not like that, and it appeals to me because I'm an incredible nerd and so ingrained in academia that like an entire movie about the importance of education and learning life and moral lessons is automatically going to appeal to me so no it's not action heavy in the way of say a lion king or a mulan or even beauty and the beast but i think it's a i mean even some of the contemporary movies like the aristocats or the jungle book or uh, robin hood like there's more vibrant stuff happening i think and so in the stone is very much like the stuff happening is episodic in a way but it's a movie about fate and will and how those two things come together and kind of that question of inevitability or fate that comes up several times and if you are fated to be king how do you best prepare for that so in that way, like, I think it is about something. I think there's something genuinely happening. But you are right that it's not, like, I understand why people get bored during this one, even though I think oh, it's a great movie. Bored in the stone. Oh. Okay. Um, but Hey-o. I think because the entire plot of the movie, if I'm not mistaken, is Merlin is teaching him these, like, different morals. And then all of those morals are what get used to defeat Madame Mim in the duel. I, the, the scene with Madame Mim is so interesting in that, A, it's still really cool animation. Like, that scene is still really impressive to me. 
And it's definitely meant to be like the fun actiony moment that like, okay, here's a climax. Um, I think it's the ultimate reckoning with magic that the movie sets up where early on, you know, Merlin says everyone has problems and don't assume magic will fix all of them because it won't. And it gets cheeky later on and says that, oh, magic will fix this problem. And then in the duel, we see kind of the natural uh, climax of that, I guess, where it's a totally magical duel, but it requires Merlin's smarts and intelligence and understanding of other people to actually get through that. So, yeah, he can change into a jackrabbit or a caterpillar or a walrus or whatever, but without uh, the mental acuity that he has or if he was just sort of emotionally driven like madame mim then he wouldn't be able to win so i and i think it's key too that eventually he wins by turning to a virus there's that sense of future thinking that of course it's part and parcel with merlin like he can't not think in the future like that's in all the lore but crucially it's that okay i'm not going to break the very rules we set up in the form of purple dragon but i'm going to stretch them because i understand that you know i'm, I'm not gonna out duel her in the the animal sense because she's just gonna cheat but if i if i bend those rules if i use my understanding more uh, then it's not just brawn that i can use intelligence to actually win this thing so i think in a way yeah kind of some of those morals come together anyway but i think ultimately because we have the sword scene and the throne room scene that it's it's trying to set up that like arthur needs to learn these to be the great king that he is destined to be and that we know him to be I don't know. I'd be interested in a version that doesn't have that and that like has Arthur, but stops short of that moment. That but that version exists. That's what it's setting up. That version exists. You just stop the film. You just stop it and the movie, and you're like, "Wow, what a good movie that was! Look at this little weenie boy running off to get a sword. That's the end, and and like that's it. That's the movie, and it's a great movie. It's got squirrel romance. What more could you want? Yeah, the squirrel scene is one of my favorites ever, and I will defend that scene to the death. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm there with you. I love the squirrel. I love the sugar bowl. Impudent <laughs> crockery. I feel like the, also the songs are just so good. One thing that brings me great sadness is that those songs don't end up on the collections or like the Disney albums, and you never see those like played on anything and it's like yeah they're not the big showstoppers but like they're really good i feel like though the what makes the world go round i've heard that before i'm like one of those like disney vhs like sing-along tapes oh there's a blast uh, and like that one i know but like yeah i'm trying to think like that one probably gets some play i'm surprised mim's song doesn't get more like, just as part of the villain canon of, like, fun tunes. Yeah, but it's not, I don't know that it's memorable. Like, when I think of the songs, again, maybe it's just because I grew up on Disney VHS sing-along, so what makes the world go round is the fish. Like, that's just what sticks with me from this movie. But, like, Hockety Pockety is just so fun. Hockety Pockety carries such melody and such memory with total nonsense lyrics. And what makes the world go around actually has some clever wordplay throughout. Like they're very 
inventive songs in that way. Like, they're not totally as memorable as some of the later stuff in particular, or even some of the stuff from Jungle Book or Robin Hood, really. Like, they don't have the same legacy anyway, but I think just in terms of genuine cleverness that the songs and swordness don't really hold up. I think overall the movie is so smart and so witty. But is part of the reason that it doesn't get that recognition just because of when it came out? Because it's, what, early 60s, 63? That it's just, like, that's, like, what, right before that garbage animation of, like, ugly 101 Dalmatians and... So, it's right around, like, Sleeping Beauty is around then, uh, after it's going to be Robin Hood, Jungle Book, Aristocats is early 70s. Dalmatians is in there somewhere. I think Dalmatians um, is 61 because it's the same kind of like sketch animation. Yeah. Well, other than like well, most of those movies after Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Beauty, not so much, but like the next five kind of just share and recycle a whole bunch of animation. Like there's all those compilations you can go on and see, like, right? The different movies that just use the same thing but change the character art. Most of them are from that era. Like Sleeping Beauty recycles some, or. Beauty and the Beast, rather, recycles some stuff, but that's kind of a pur- purposeful callback, I think, in the 60s and early 70s. It was just like, well, this will save money and time. Like, let's reuse that. <clears throat> in the same way that it's most of the same voice actors through the whole thing, too. So, I don't know. Like, it's not exactly a fallow period for that, because there's big stuff around it that we definitely remember. But, um, like, we remember before and after, I feel like. Right. Yeah, I think there is some degree to which people just read it as boring. And I don't know, if you're like me, it has a certain immediate appeal, I think. But otherwise, I love the characters, but, I'm, you know, there's not a Baloo. There's not a, a Thomas O'Malley. There's not... The same voice actor. A, what's that? It's not the same yeah, voice actor. Yeah, it's also the voice actor of Little John. That's what I'm saying. They just recycled. Well, because you said Baloo, and then you said Ty, and I was trying to like listen to their voices. And I'm like, wait, wait, that's the same. That's the same guy. Same person. But uh, just like that charismatic, like. I, yeah, there's not that like overwhelming presence in the movie. I don't think like Merlin's kind of supposed to be that, but Merlin's just kind of doofy in a way that the other ones aren't. I feel like Archimedes though kind of has that like. If I if I had my druthers, Archimedes would be. <laughs> I think Archimedes is the character we're actually supposed to track in the movie, and this is why the ending scenes kind of upset me sometimes. It's interesting to have this childhood Arthur exploration because in the literature, it, like that doesn't come up so much. Like you kind of just start at, oh, this is Uther Pendragon's, you know, son that he sent away. And he grows up, it depends on the version, but like generally grows up with Merlin, which is another interesting wrinkle that the movie adds. He doesn't grow up with Merlin. Merlin just knows they're going to encounter each other. And eventually he pulls the sword from the stone and then the Lady of the Lake gives him Excalibur. And then most of the stories um, are after that. Like once he finds that, that role or, or gets those swords, and then what he does as king of England. So it's interesting to just have a movie that focuses on his childhood, I think, and starts to investigate the questions of 
Right, so you have this this legend that was fated to be king. Not only what does it look like for that person growing up, especially as basically an orphan, but also what what's necessary to actually prepare someone for a fate so heavy. But that said, I think we can really see that come through in Archimedes in particular, who grows the most in that movie. He starts off as... I mean, he's curmudgeonly throughout, but like totally resistant and basically just reclusive, get off my lawn type character at the beginning. Like eventually starts to grow fond of Arthur. Uh, the lovely scene where he saves him from the Barracuda and Merlin calls him out and he says, oh no, I intended to eat him. Young Perch is my favorite dish. You know that. And... Then when they're te- like eventually starts teaching him and takes it seriously and then shows him how to fly and there's like genuine care there and then you know it's in that throne scene at the end Archimedes is on the right side so if you're thinking of like right hand man that's Archimedes positioning and just the way he comes around to Arthur in his increased understanding of you know, all everything at play here. I think Archimedes has the best arc in the whole movie. So really, if we want to see all of these lessons play out, the importance of wits, the importance of adapting and using your intelligence, the the highs and lows of love and affection and of interpersonal interaction, and the ability to know your limits, um, to not fly too high, literally and figuratively, and to know adapt to any situation like it's really archimedes who's doing that arthur's not ready yet because again in that throne room scene the robe's way too big the helmet keeps falling down like it's very clearly a symbol of he's ill fit for this position right now anyway um we we know what he'll grow into but right now it just doesn't fit him and so he needs archimedes and he needs merlin and he needs some support structure like that but you know, maybe eventually he grows in those ways, but I think the movie is really showing us that, like, yeah, it worked on this other dude, but or owl, rather, but, you know, you don't need a grand fate to actually learn these things and employ them. I, I guess that's a long way of saying that, like, I think those ending scenes are important, but we are right from the start of the movie, it's called The Sword and the Stone. We know it's about Arthur. We know it's about Merlin. Like, your eyes are supposed to focus on them and, like, what's going to happen afterwards. But I argue that what if the movie wants us to look somewhere else to actually see how those morals play out, to actually see a character grow with them and grow into them? Uh, And still have, like, and still not be perfect because, right, Archimedes is trying to escape at the end, too. Like, He's not quite ready. We've seen a lot of growth, but like there's still more to go. And I think that's significant too. But you know who can't grow anymore because they've really just hit the apex of growth. They've 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 ascended, they've learned Sugar Bowl. <laughs> Sugar Bowl knows what it is and just embraces that and like there's a confidence and a swagger to Sugar Bowl that I aspire to. See, that's again, I can see why you relate to Archimedes. I, I, I like I like the overarching character arc Medes, that's there. When you say that the ending scenes, you're talking about the throne room. I, so yeah, like the very literal ending where so it's right 
I mean, we can talk about the sword pulling scene too. I'm certainly happy to do that. But in in that moment, I was talking about yeah, where Arthur and Archimedes are just kind of alone in the throne room. They try to get out two doors, and the the shouts for Arthur like just push Archimedes all the way back in. Uh, and then you know Arthur says, "I need Merlin," and Merlin comes back from Bermuda, and we get the nice circularity of at the beginning of the movie him saying one one medieval mess. And then when he comes back from the 20th century, he's like, and you can have it. It's just one modern mess, which to me is super interesting. It's just like this continuance of messiness and really does Arthur's kinghood mean anything at that point? If it's just going to be a mess the whole time or again, or like, you know, does this effectively undercut the utopic vision of Arthur's ascendance to the throne? So what I'm hearing is that because it starts a mess and will in the future be a mess, nothing that Arthur does will matter because it will continue to stay a mess. So the lessons he learns here and the lessons we are supposed to learn just don't matter. So we are now no. looking at an hour and some odd minutes of just nothing. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that the lessons matter in so much as you actively grow with them and employ them, which Arthur has not done yet. Because, because he's he a weenie. to go back to being a squire and just wanted to be with Kay. And, I mean, look, it would suck to just find out that you're the only one who can pull this magical sword and you are fated to an existence that you don't want. Like, that would lead anyone to existential crisis. But it, by the end of the movie, Arthur has not effectively learned anything yet, I don't think. We saw him try and pull that all back and now get stuck in this. So I think the movie's not telling us nothing. I think it's actually subverting the whole myth in that way and showing us that you could be fated to greatness or not, Archimedes. It's how well you learn and grow with certain principles and you know how do, how do you communicate those to other people as well like all the teaching moments of Archimedes and Merlin um so no I don't think it's totally nihilist in that way but I do think we can get a really inter interesting subversive reading because of what those last scenes show us um and, and because of Arthur's general weeniness and the really symbolic nature of he just doesn't fit into this yet because he hasn't grown enough. He hasn't learned enough. Okay. I can get behind that. I see it. I like the vision. I like, I like what you're putting down. I'm picking it up and putting it in my bag, singing a song. It's all getting there. I have a question. Our discussion here is we're removing the sword scene from the movie. What does that give us in this movie? If we remove the sword pulling scene, we now have to rename the movie. Because the sword in the stone is no longer present. What is the name of this movie? Oh, God. Um, well, I don't know. There's a TV show called Merlin. Maybe it's just that at that point. Like, I mean, in reality, if they don't call it the sword in the stone, it's probably something involving Merlin or Arthur's name just directly. That's sort of a like literal marketing answer. I don't know what I would want it to be called besides that. Like you you get told your wireless dreams are coming true. You get to reimagine 
the sword and the stone, as you see fit. Everything that you want here is happening, which is basically just this movie without this scene. What are you naming it? Well, well, okay. I don't know that I don't want the scene, though. I want to read the scene differently. Okay, well, I don't want the scene. You gotta appease me. I don't want this scene in there. What is what is this movie about? What are you naming this movie? Okay. If it's not named The Sword and the Stone, I still don't quite know what I'm naming it, but it's definitely not something that references this, like, golden child of mythic England and that moment where everything changes, like, as the narrative framing says... Um, you know, after the good king dies, they descend into the dark ages, waiting for the one person that can pull this sword. Like it's not referencing this this moment of, okay, now we will we will go to greatness again. So almost like this period of blackness, just amid, well, just like, like I mean, framing wise, effectively that's what they're in. That's not what I'm naming it. I'm just saying I'm not going to name it something that references the moment of like. Well, I'm just thinking. There's this darkness, yeah. so we've got the color black. And then, like, you know, they're all in this together. Almost like one might be in a pot or a bowl or a cauldron. <laughs> we just call it the black cauldron. As soon as you said pot, I knew where that was going. <laughs> I was so proud of that. Uh, that was that was good. I... <laughs> um. All right, that's settled. This is the true Black Cauldron movie. <laughs> Black Cauldron 2. Wait, which one came first? Black Cauldron came first. <laughs> Black Cauldron 2 Electric Boogaloo. It's here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes, we have effectively named this movie. To be clear, I don't like... I don't like the sword scene because of the the natural implication that we're led to. But if we don't get the sword scene, we also don't get the throne scene that I can play around with. So it's not that I want to excise the scene totally. Uh, I want to redirect attention in terms of how we're actually reading that and in terms of how like that impacts the rest of the movie and, and what it's doing to that myth in particular. Um, basically, I just don't want the movie to be about Arthur. Like, Arthur to me is a plot mover, but the stuff that we are to take away from the movie resides elsewhere, and, and Arthur's just sort of part of this. Okay. Okay, see, I like that. I'm a fan of that. To kind of wrap up to surmise, the sword-pulling scene is not crucial to the film itself, other than to set the basis of these are the players, these are the pieces. It also gives us the scene at the end, which you are arguing is important as it brings everything together to show that the entire purpose of the film to teach these morals and to teach these lessons all came to fruition. I think, yes, the sword scene is important in so much as it's a crucial moment of the plot map that allows all of those themes to come together in a more cohesive way than if we took out that scene or took out that moment entirely. And it does allow the movie to be commentary on historicity and and myth and fate itself 
and as I like to read it, subverts those to some degree, which is really interesting for a Disney movie in particular, especially of that time where they're very much relying on myth and on these classic stories um, and, and recasting those for new audiences, for children. Disney has a long history of, of tamping legends down quite a bit. Little Mermaid being Exhibit A, probably. And certainly, like, it does with the Arthur myth, because you're not getting into the great violence of his, um, you know, his fighting days or of his kingship or sexual promiscuity of it all. So, like, it's toning it down that way, but I think it's actually complicating it in other ways. That's pretty interesting, just at a critical level. Yeah, so I think the scene is necessary as a plot point, because it does allow for that more cohesive moment to happen. But I would. I, I don't think it should be the focus of the movie in terms of, okay, Arthur has achieved the thing now. Now we can move forward to, to all the goodness and to the glory of England. And I think that right there is the Cogsworth.